The following message is brought to you by Champions Church. For more information, please visit champschurch.com. I'm looking forward to getting into the Word this morning. I'm excited for what we have in the Word. Now, every time we come together, there is a stirring. There's something that we ought to anticipate. We really don't have casual church services. We never come together and, and just have, you know, well, it's kind of a sleepy Sunday. And if there ever was one, wouldn't it be this one, right? I mean, what is it? How many inches of rain? Anybody know the rainfall total? Inch and a half? But it came so slow and steady, right? Doesn't it make you just want to, like, you know, lay down, take a nap, and wake up when it's over? It just, it kind of inspires a sense of hibernation, right? Well, listen, I want to make sure that as we get into the Word this morning, we get into the Word with an excitement and an urgency, because I believe as we get into the Word, God's always revealing things that are absolutely necessary for us. For us as a church, as a body of believers, as the body of Christ, but then for us as individuals. I mean, there's things that we are seeing and walking through together as a congregation, and then there are things in your personal life that you're seeing and you're walking through, and God's ministering to all of those all the time. So as we get into the Word this morning, I want to encourage you to to pay close attention, take some notes. I love note-taking. I think it's important to jot things down, write things down for a couple of reasons. One, it helps you make a connection with what God's speaking this morning. Two, it helps God make a connection with you later on concerning what he's speaking to you personally. So I want to give you a few things that we're going to find in the Word. If you want to write these down, you can. These are things to look forward to as we go through the Scripture. One, we're going to find out what the opposite of fear is. Now that might be a bit of a personal opinion, but bear with me and we'll see if you feel the same way when we get there. The opposite of fear. A second thing that we're going to find is how to be a man or a woman of faith. Lots of great reasons why we need to see those things through and be men of faith and women of faith. Oftentimes we'll hear messages on what we need to be and we'll not hear messages on how to be those things. So I want to find out how to be men and women of faith this morning. And then a third thing that we're going to find before we close and dismiss today is what comes before the Great Commission. Now, if you're not familiar with the Great Commission, the Great Commission is what we call the charge that Jesus gives the church, and that's me and you. As he ascends to heaven, as he is is being exalted at the right hand of the Father, he leaves this instruction for us to go and make disciples of all the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and to instruct them to keep his commandments and that he'll always be with us. We refer to that as the Great Commission. We're going to see what comes before that. We want to make sure that we are starting at step one and not skipping ahead to step two. So I want to get into the Word this morning. As we get into the Word, I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to a couple of places. Okay? First of all, you can write this down for your notes. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. It happens to be a bit of a personal favorite passage of Scripture, so it actually makes a lot of messages because I like it. I think you'll like it too. So if you want to write it down, you can. Luke chapter 1. Now the verses that I'm going to read to you very quickly are verses 68 through 75. 
And because I want to read through them quickly, if some of them are a bit paraphrased, just bear with me. But what you're seeing here in Luke chapter 1 is the point of the gospel, the work of the cross and the resurrection and Jesus' exaltation, what God's doing in my life and in your life. And it comes through a prophecy that's revealed. And as the prophecy is being revealed, it sounds like this. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us. Just as he's spoken by the holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we, okay, I want to pause there. Who's we? Yeah, we is everyone. Everyone. The children of Israel. The Gentiles grafted in, everyone, we, we are now a part of this, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all of those who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father. It goes on to say this, that God would grant unto us that being delivered out of the hands of our enemies, we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness all of the days of our lives. So God's calling us and doing this work through Jesus to bring us to a place of serving Him in holiness and righteousness. But you can see the obstacle here. The obstacle to holiness and the obstacle to righteousness is obviously fear. God's doing this work in us. He's granting us or giving us this wonderful uh, call and purpose that when we're delivered from our enemies... We might serve him without having any fear and operate in holiness and in righteousness. So you can see the gospel's work, purging our lives of fear. And when you put your mind to this and think about this, you can see that most sin, if not all sin, is the result of fear in one way, shape, or form. People do immoral things because they're afraid to be alone or they fear loneliness. People steal because they're afraid of poverty. People are vindictive because they're afraid there's no justice. Fear is at the foundation of all things corrupt. And God is purging our lives of fear so that we can operate and function in service to Him in holiness and in righteousness. Now I want you to turn somewhere else because we're laying the foundation here. We're going to move quickly. I'd like for you to turn to Mark chapter 4. I told you we're going to find out what the opposite of fear is. I think we're going to find it here in Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4 contains a lot of wonderful scripture. I'd encourage you to read it in your own time. We're going to look at a specific part of Mark chapter 4. We're going to look beginning in verse 35. Mark chapter 4 beginning in verse 35. Now again, I'm going to read a little. We may paraphrase a little bit, but we're not going to miss the point. Now what you have here in Mark chapter 35 is you have believers. These are men that have been with Jesus. They've been with Jesus and seen incredible things. They've listened to his word. They've seen the miracles performed at his hand, the power of God released through his ministry. There's been incredible things that they've witnessed, and now they're moving. They're moving to another place, another location. And I love that it opens with, on that day. So you're dealing with the same day. They've seen great things come at the hands of Jesus. They've seen the power of God released. They've seen authority over unclean things and darkness. They've rejoiced. And in the same day, they face an entirely different set of circumstances. Verse 35 begins like this. On that day when evening came, Jesus said to them, let's go over to the other side. 
Now, you have to understand why Jesus is saying this, because other people need what God's doing. He's not trying to get away. He's not looking for a break. In fact, he's saying, other people need this. Let's go. Don't worry about getting rest tonight. Let's just head out right now. We can be there by morning. Let's go. Let's go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they, they took Jesus along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And when they woke him, they said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Now listen, that's a really polite way for me to read that. Because this microphone is really loud, and these speakers are capable of blowing the glass out of these doors. But you know they didn't walk up to him and say, Excuse me, teacher. Don't you care that we're perishing? I mean, these guys were wigging out. And these were some burly guys, and I'm sure they were screaming like little girls. And they were losing it. They had lost their marbles. They they had obviously lost sight of how incredible things were just hours ago, but the real-time circumstances that were right in front of their face were defining their future, and their future was imminent death. And as they're screaming and they're yelling, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? The word says that Jesus gets up and he rebukes the wind saying, hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. That's pretty awesome. But then something really awesome happens. And I have to think this is the point of all of this because God knows how to set them up and knock them down, right? God knows how to cause the storm that causes you to cry out so that he can create a teachable moment. The storm rises. The men cry. Jesus calms the storm. And then we have the entire point of all of this. Then he turns to make the most of this God-ordained, teachable moment. And the word begins to read like this. And he said to them, Now, if you're kind of like me, you can be a little quirky when it comes to your Bible. And you can scratch out the word them and just write me. And he said to me, and he said to them, why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? I think when we consider fear in our lives and and we look at the effects of fear and how it opens up the door for corruption and, and compromised decisions and choices, We're afraid that no one's going to affirm us, so we affirm ourselves. We're we're afraid that no one's going to notice what we're doing, so we promote ourselves. We're afraid that we'll go without, so we take what's not ours. The list could go on and on and on. When you see the results of fear, we can come to the conclusion that fear has no place in the believer's heart. And I think this storm was ordained by God. I think he caused the winds to blow and the waves to crash over to create a very teachable moment where people could see the opposite of fear, that Jesus didn't say, hey, why is it that you're afraid? How come you don't have any courage? Why is it that you're afraid? Why can't you be brave like me? But he would begin to identify the cure for fear when he said, hey, how is it that you're afraid? Why is it that you don't have faith? My brain is given to think in opposites. 
Oftentimes, if we're ministering to a situation, whether it's, you know, a nation or, or a person, when you're dealing with the things that are unseen, like the Bible says we do, for the most part, you're ministering to a spiritual situation with the opposite spirit. Like I think you defeat a spirit of poverty with a spirit of generosity. I think you defeat a spirit of infirmity with life. So when we're considering how this spiritual operation works, we can see that Jesus could very possibly be identifying to us what the opposite of fear is when he's acknowledging that where there's fear present, there's no faith. How come you guys are so afraid? What happened to your faith? Where's your faith? Now, maybe it's a a gender thing. I don't think it is, but it could be. I've devoted a lot of my life to trying to have the appearance of courage and bravery in the face of danger. I think I've permanently creased my brow right here by trying to look tough all the time. And now when I tell my wife I love her, it looks really, really weird. I love you so much. The greatest thing that ever happened to me. (laughs) It looks like a threat, right? God, help me. But we can run into problems like this, you know, because we know these things need to come out of our lives. We know that God's putting things in. But maybe we've not been shown the process, or maybe we really haven't caught what Jesus is saying, so we kind of do it our way, or we do it the way we've seen people before us do it, our, our fathers, our pastors, or the people around us that we've looked up to in the past. And it's great to have fathers, it's great to have pastors, it's great to have people that you look up to, but I think it's really important that they be worth looking up to. Because I would hope that they're getting it right if you're looking up to them. And now I'm raising two boys, they're nine years old, and I'm realizing they're looking up to me whether I like it or not. So Jesus is showing us here something. He's he's showing us that where there's the presence of fear, there's the absence of faith. So if I wanted to, to deal with the spirit of poverty, we would want to impart generosity. If I were wanting to deal with fear in this situation, based on what I hear Jesus saying, I would feel the need to impart faith. I want to talk about faith this morning. I want to acknowledge faith and talk about what it is. I want to find out how we can be men and women of faith. I think it starts with acknowledging that faith is a priority. I think we see that faith is a priority. If we can come to the conclusion that faith is the opposite of fear, and we can see that the point of the gospel is to drive fear out of our hearts, then we can come to the understanding that God's very interested in us being men and women of faith. It's a priority. Here's a passage of scripture for you to take in your notes, Hebrews 11.6. Hebrews 11.6, it reads like this, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. That means you and I can go to every church service, every prayer meeting, we can lift our hands in worship, and, and we can pursue all of the gifts of the Spirit, and we can participate in every benevolent work. But if those things don't move us to a place of faith, those things are empty. Now, this topic is one that has sparked great debate throughout church denominations and church history. And if there's anything that sparks in you, I would encourage you simply turn to the Word of God. And if there's a desire to speak in more detail on the matter, call me up. 325-260-8438. 
and I'd love to talk to you. Faith is a necessity. It's a priority. If we need faith in our lives to live a life that's pleasing to God, then we need to be a people who are devoted to living lives of faith. We need to pursue faith. We need to follow the instructions that God gives us to operate in faith. And I believe we're going to see those in just a moment. And that word in Hebrews goes on to say that when we come to God in a pleasing way, when we're operating in faith, it's coming to Him in such a way that we believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. I mentioned faith being a priority. I want to give you a passage of Scripture that you, you probably don't hear in a lot of messages concerning faith or in churches at all. But just let this blow your mind all by itself and know that it's not something that comes from the first book of Preston, but it comes from the book of Romans. It's in the Scripture. Romans 14.23, at least the back half of it, you can look it up and, and read it in your own time. In fact, I greatly encourage that. But it says something that can be greatly encouraging or incredibly disturbing. It says this, whatever is not of faith is sin. Whatever is not of faith is sin. Now, I want to trust that the Holy Spirit can minister the, the purpose and the deepest meanings of that to you individually. But I want to offer this to you as we continue in examining the priority of faith and how to become a faith-filled people in order to not be gripped by fear. None of us have any problem acknowledging things that are, are deeply carnal as being sinful. In fact, we can open up the altar and Jared can fire up the band and we can call for repentance and people will come and they will, will confess their sins and repent because we, we have a pretty good understanding of what's right and what's wrong. The Holy Spirit is constantly drawing our attention to those things. But what a conviction if a people could come together and in their prayer lives say, Father, I would like for the things that I do, even the mundane things, to be by faith. I don't want anything in my life to become so routine, so casual, and so common that it could become sin. I want to trust you in every aspect of my living. I want there to be a purpose behind the things that I do. I want my life to be so intentional that from the time I rise out of bed to the time I go to sleep, I'm doing it in faith, believing, trusting in you, that you're at work in my life. And I have to confess that these practices and these disciplines can grow wearisome. They can even erode. I remember as a child, I, part of my prayers before going to bed was, I gave God my sleep. Father, I give you my sleep. Take my dreams and do great things with them. And I look at that and I think, you know, that might sound kind of silly to some, but that's even going to sleep in faith. I want my, my sleep to be intentional. Even when most people are thinking they're checked out and there's just nothing but white noise and black. I know you can use that. Your word says that you minister to your beloved even in their sleep. So I give you my sleep. Let it be in faith that I lay my head down tonight. 
And it may sound a bit silly, I hope not. But I think that a conviction can rise in us where we see God's made our lives so awesome, there's nothing common about it. And it's routine that introduces the risk of things eroding away and losing that special awareness that God's involved in every waking moment and every moment of rest in our lives. Faith is really a commodity, and if you don't like that term, that's okay. I mean, I'm a bit of a farm boy at heart. Right after high school, I pursued agriculture, so sometimes that affects how I think and how I see things. But I think that faith is a commodity. I mean, if you don't know that word or you're not familiar with it, I mean, you could say the cash in your wallet is a commodity. If we were talking agriculture, the seed that a farmer has is a commodity. I want to give you these as a support to that, and I'm I'm wanting to offer these to you for the purpose of inspiring an awareness of faith, that it needs to be managed and managed properly. Now, when I was farming, we did. We managed a, a land. We put seed in the ground, and when that came up and yielded its fruit, we harvested it. You sold some, you could eat some, but then it was very wise to keep some so that you could sow it again when the season was right. Now, faith is no different. In fact, when Jesus talks about faith, and we're going to read here in a moment, Matthew chapter 17, when he talks about faith, he compares it to a seed. So he is making this comparison to a commodity. Now, here's something about faith that I want to share as we move forward. Romans chapter 12, verse 3. God has allotted to each of us a measure of faith. Now, I love each of us, right? That's really an awesome thing to consider. Nobody's left out. Believer, unbeliever, doesn't matter. You're born into this world, and God has allotted you a measure of faith. Now, I've got really awesome news for you. That measure is not the measure that you're stuck with for the rest of your life. What we do with that measure depends on whether faith increases and grows or whether it diminishes and decreases. The disciples, on occasion, when they were faced with difficulty or frustration, would say this word to Jesus. They would would say this phrase, increase our faith. And you know, he never answered, nope, can't do it. He never answered, can't be done, you're out of luck. You got what you're born with. Some of you are greater than others, and you're just going to have to deal with that. But when that was the cry of a person's heart, increase my faith, The words that followed, the actions that followed were intended to do just that. And God's goodness and His presence in our life is meant to be increasing our faith if we'll steward it properly. And I want to talk about that in just a moment. Romans chapter 10, 17, or chapter 10, verse 17, it gives a a source or an origin for faith. That faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. Faith is also a spiritual gift listed in 1 Corinthians 12. Oftentimes, I believe that faith is a spiritual gift that is operated in in our Sunday services as we're delivering the Word. Speaking the Word of God into the ears of those who are hearing and seeing faith be imparted. I want us to turn to Matthew chapter 17. 
where Jesus acknowledges faith as a seed. And obviously, I acknowledge a seed as a commodity. Now, I'm going to paraphrase a bit, but you can read along if you would like. We're going to begin in verse 14. Verse 14. Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 14. Now, as we read this, I I want you to try to put yourself in the scenario. Try to put yourself in the crowd. And if you're bold enough, put yourself in the position of one of the, the key people in what's being described here. It's not a story. It's a recorded account. This happened. It actually happened. But I want to encourage you to use your imagination and see if you can't place yourself in this situation. And if you're like me and you've operated in Christian ministry in any capacity, whether it's praying for someone at Walmart or ministering from a pulpit, you've probably been in a situation just like we're about to see here. Verse 14, it begins reading like this. And when they came to the multitude, a man came up to him. Now the hymn is capitalized, it's Jesus. And falling on his knees before Jesus, he said, Lord, have mercy on my son. He's a lunatic. He's very ill. And often he falls or throws himself into the fire or to water. And I brought him to your disciples. Now that would be us in this situation. And they couldn't cure him. Jesus goes on to make a couple of statements. And then it says that Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and the demon came out and the boy was cured at once. Can you just snap? Yeah, at once. Isn't that nice? At once. Now, I've been in situations like that where people have come for ministry and, you know, maybe you're not seeing the result that you want to see, so... Like most Christians, you think if I talk longer, it'll be more effective. And so, you know, this moment, this what's meant to be a moment at the altar turns into a full-on counseling appointment with a second session, you know. But this guy is coming and he's desperate for his son to be healed. I mean, he's absolutely desperate. But basically what we're reading here is I've already brought him to one of your services at least. I've already come to one of your services at least. That's what we know, at least one. I've already been once and I brought him for ministry and nothing happened. And now I'm here in front of you on my knees and I'm crying and I'm declaring that you're Lord. Please, please heal my son. And it happens. Now, later on, you know, you'll see here in verse 19, later on the disciples get up the courage to go and talk to Jesus about this. And it would take some guts. I mean, I've asked some very incredible people in in Christian ministry, you know, some questions that I was almost humiliated to ask, like, how did that work? Why doesn't that work when I do it? I mean, those are weird things to ask people. And you really have to kind of, you know, swallow hard. and, 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 you know, there's no pride on the table left when you're when you're asking those things. So knowing how prideful these guys were in the, in the record of their you know, attempts of who's the greatest in their authority, I have a feeling this was probably a really intense situation where they felt really ashamed or embarrassed or concerned or convicted. I think a lot was going on to get them to go up to Jesus and say, hey, listen, we don't get it. I mean, we've been able to kind of coast and fake this for a lot of services, but we're at a point now where, where we can't anymore. 
because we did the same thing you did for that boy. The only difference was he stayed sick when we did it, and he got cured when you did it. Can you please tell me the difference? What a wonderful God-orchestrated moment for learning once again. God loves to make these teachable moments in our lives. And he created this teachable moment for men to humble their heart, come to Jesus. And this is what they say in verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately. And they said, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus says this, because of the littleness of your faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it shall be done. And nothing shall be impossible to you. Did you hear that? To you. Not for me, not for God, but for you. Now, there's something there I want us to look at because I think this passage here can become a stumbling block. It can become something that doesn't enlighten us or educate us or lift us up, but it can become something that is burdensome to us. And it all depends on how we see faith. When he says it's the littleness of your faith, Jesus isn't telling us to have big faith because he then goes on to say if you had faith like a mustard seed, he picked the smallest thing he could think of. I mean, I'm just guessing that's the case. But he just picked this tiny thing and said, if you had faith like that. So when he says the littleness of your faith, he's acknowledging the absence of faith. The lack of faith. And because that word littleness is in our translations, oftentimes we now pursue a life of big faith. And it leads us to buying books and going to conferences and seminars and just thinking, if my faith can just get big enough, I can be effective for the kingdom of God. I need big faith. And Jesus is actually saying the opposite here. He's acknowledging, listen, it didn't work for you because of the absence of faith. But just faith like a mustard seed. I mean, guys, I'm not even saying you got to have a lot. Just have that. And that he used a seed is incredible because a seed is a carrier of the potential for fruit. Trust me, I'm a farmer. A seed carries the potential for fruit. And as Jesus is talking to us about faith, he compares faith to a seed. Sometimes we get so caught up on being the one that produces the fruit, we forget to sow the seed. And because we demand something the way that we want to see it or the way that we want it, we miss out on how God's doing it, the process that's involved. We label things failure before they ever have an opportunity to be success. But Jesus is speaking to us here about faith. And he talks about it being this small thing that has the potential to do big things. And I want to examine faith today. I want to catch what that small idea is, that small mentality that we need to function and operate in to carry and release those big and effective things that God's released us to do in His kingdom. So I want to get into what faith is quickly. I want to know what it is, and then I want to talk about how we can operate in it. Now, if you're looking for faith as a definition, oftentimes we turn to the dictionary, but I believe that we have a dictionary-style definition of faith in the Scripture. If you'd like to see what I'm referring to, you can take it down in your notes. I would encourage you to turn there. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. 
Hebrews chapter 11, right here in the beginning. Now, faith is. Now, be prepared to allow this to, to communicate a definition. I'm not offering it as absolute. I'm just offering it as the Scripture. The Scripture declares this. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, if you want to make a note, just in your notes there, you can make a note of Romans chapter 8, verses 24 and 25. Romans 8, 24 and 25. We'll probably talk about that passage in weeks to come. It's referring to hope. It says hope can't be seen. So when you're dealing here with this definition of faith, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, that helps that definition to make sense. Whatever you're hoping for can't be seen. The moment you can see it, you're no longer hoping for it. So I want to turn to the dictionary quickly to gain an understanding of faith. The substance of things hoped for. I want to look up the word substance. We turn to the dictionary and we look up substance. It reads like this. The real physical matter of which a person or thing consists that has tangible presence. So hope can't be seen, but substance can be. There's another word in here, evidence. Remember, hope is the substance of, or faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Evidence by definition, the available body of facts or information indicating whether a belief or a proposition is true or valid. You might have to go back to the recording if you didn't get all of those. But I want to give you a passage of Scripture to read in your own time. James chapter 2. You'll see a series of passages in James chapter 2 that are referring to faith and the connection between faith and works. James ends this Revelation, this inspired impartation to the church by saying, faith without any works is absolutely dead. Well, that's what we're seeing here in Hebrews, that faith is a substance. It's what we do in the process of hoping for what God has for us. What we do is extremely important. Now, when I was a farmer and I had the seed that I knew had held all of the hopes for next year's harvest in it, it carried all of that potential. It had to be cared for. It had to be stored properly. You had to watch the seasons to know the right time, the proper time. You had to prepare the ground that it was going to be sown into. There was non-stop preparation. Nothing was automatic. Even though that seed held the potential, whether I tilled the ground or not, the results of that potential being released were dependent upon my actions in the off-season. I love that faith is acknowledged in the armor of God. In the specific piece, in God's absolute wisdom, it's so perfect how He describes the pieces of the armor that we're meant to wear in our daily walk. And faith is the shield. It's the shield of faith. I love that because the shield is out in front. 
The shield is an action that is out in front in order to prevent wound. Now in the church today, it seems like faith would be more like the medevac of faith. After you've been wounded and hurt, let's have some faith. Let's have some faith for healing. But in the armor of God, it's out in front. It's the action that precedes any other movement by the warrior to prevent injury, to prevent wound, to prepare the way for progress and advancement. I mentioned to you that we were going to find something in the Scripture, how to be men and women of faith. I want to do that right now, and I want to turn to a passage of Scripture we're going to read together. Luke chapter 7. As you turn there, I want to make sure that the foundation is set for what we're about to read. When we heard the response of Jesus, when the disciples came to him and humbled their heart and say, you know, we ministered to that child and nothing happened, and then you ministered to that child and he was delivered, what's the difference? When Jesus acknowledged the littleness or the absence of faith, I think the church has taken that and created a great bondage for believers. Mainly in the sense that our understanding of faith can be poor at best. Oftentimes having faith in God or having faith in something means believing in it. It's not necessarily bad, but if that's where our definition of faith ends, then we're in real trouble. If we see that we need to believe in God more, that can be really problematic. I mean, it might sound kind of goofy to you, but here's a little test that is helpful to understand what I'm saying. How many of you in the room believe in elephants? Yeah, I mean, you know, why do you believe in elephants? Because you've seen one, yeah, maybe. Even if you hadn't seen it, maybe you've heard or maybe seen them on TV, you know. But, But regardless of how, you believe in elephants, right? Okay, now we're going to try something, okay? It's an exercise here. Are you ready? I want you to believe in elephants more. Try it. I mean, I want you to have big faith in elephants. I want you to to really believe in them more than you've ever believed in them before. It's kind of ridiculous, huh? But we kind of do that with God. We tell people to believe in greater quantity. And man, my my brain just backfires when I even try to do that. I mean, you either believe or you don't. But when Jesus is talking about faith, he's not talking about just believing that God exists. The word believe in the scripture means put trust in. To put trust in. As Jesus is acknowledging faith in our lives, he's acknowledging something very specific. And if we as a church buy into old ways of thinking that to have faith in God is to believe, we could find ourselves in difficulty and hardship. I think those disciples really meant well when they went to minister to that young man. I think they believed in God. I think they believed in Jesus. I think they believed in the miracles that they had seen I think they believed in all of the things that they had witnessed. I think they believed in those things. So how is it that they could believe in all of those things and still not have faith? That tells me that faith 
and believing aren't exactly the same thing. So I want us to find out what is faith so that we can pursue faith, operate in faith, function in faith, and live the power-filled lives that God's called us to. And we'll see in Luke chapter 7 a direction that I believe we're meant to take as a church as it concerns faith. Luke chapter 7, I want to begin reading in verse 1. And when Jesus had finished speaking in the hearing of all of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a century's slave, now that's a Roman soldier, a man that is a ranking soldier, a century's slave who was highly regarded by him, the scripture acknowledges that this servant was like a son to this man, was sick and about to die. And when the century had heard that Jesus was in the area, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. And when they came to Jesus, they implored him saying, hey, this guy is a good guy. He's worthy. Please, he loves our nation and it was him that built our synagogue. And Jesus agreed and went on his way, started on his way with them to go to see the boy. And when he was not far off from the house, the ranking Roman soldier sent friends saying, Lord, don't trouble yourself any further. I'm not worthy for you to even come under my roof. And it's for this reason that I didn't even come to you myself. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers unto me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, I say, do this, and he does it. Now pay close attention to this in verse 9. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled. Isn't that awesome? Don't you want to live a life that would make Jesus marvel? I think it's pretty cool. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled. And he turned to the crowd. And he said to the crowd who was following him, I say to you, not even in all of Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found that the slave was in good health. But this is where I want us to catch the point today and receive what I believe God is speaking to us because this centurion never once talked about faith. Not once. He didn't send servants saying, I believe in you so much. I believe in you. I have big faith in you. You know what he talked about? Authority. That's what he talked about. He revealed to Jesus an understanding of authority. How it works. I understand authority. When those who are over me tell me to move, I move. When those who are, are under my care hear my command, they move. Jesus, I understand authority. And upon hearing this man's explanation of his understanding of authority, Jesus turns to the crowd and says, I've never heard such great faith in all of Israel. I think as it concerns faith, many of us have been on the treadmill of belief. If I can just believe harder, 
but I don't seem to be getting anywhere. When God is drawing us into an understanding of heavenly authority, and when we can come into that understanding of heavenly authority, we can begin to function and operate and live and minister just like Jesus. Here's a couple of passages of Scripture for you. John chapter 5, verse 19. You'll find passages just like John 5, 19 throughout the New Testament. Throughout the Gospel, anyway. And Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless He sees, or in some cases the Scripture says, here's His Father doing it. Whatever the Father does, these are the things that the Son will do in like manner. Are you catching what he's saying? Basically, he's saying, I'm under instruction. I don't move unless I'm commanded to move. He's saying the same thing that the century is saying. I understand authority. And when those above me tell me to move, I move. Jesus and this Roman soldier had a whole lot in common when it came to faith. There's a reason why there's such a need for faith in our lives. Remember, it's impossible to please God without it. It's the opposite of the fear that is the foundation of all corruption and, and sin and bondage. We have this wonderful and powerful commission to go into all of the nations carrying the ministry of reconciliation, the anointing of Jesus Christ, the anointing of the Holy Ghost on our life to make disciples of every nation. To baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is a wonderful deputization, if you will. We are the carriers of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Trusted with the expansion of the kingdom of God. But I mentioned we were going to find something. What precedes, what comes before this great commission. Jesus makes it clear. If you're taking your notes, you can write this down. Matthew 28, verse 18. Before giving us that commission, he makes something absolutely clear. The result of him obediently going to the cross, being placed in the grave and conquering death, coming out to live forevermore as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Before bestowing a commission upon us, he makes one thing absolutely clear. He says this, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. All what? All authority. All authority. So as we respond to a commission in the city of Abilene, in the surrounding area, the state of Texas, the United States of America, and the nations around the world, as we respond to a commission, one thing needs to be absolute in our minds. All authority belongs to Jesus. When he says, move, I go. When he says, stay, I stay. When he says, loose, I loose. When he says, bind, I bind. But I believe that the church has been on a treadmill of just simply believing that God exists. And so we minister according to our will, our desires, our initiative, without taking the time to listen, to see what God is doing for the purpose of being the hands and the feet and the mouthpiece of Jesus Christ on the earth today. And I believe God's calling us to be men and women of faith.
I want to ask you to stand with me this morning. Thank you for listening to this message from Champions Church. We invite you to join us this Sunday for our celebration worship service. For more information, please visit us at champschurch.com.